The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's also true that, you know, we know in the past, thanks to the Mueller report, we have a pretty good record of what it can look like when Trump is hard up for cash. The Mueller report has a big section on his efforts to build a Trump Tower Moscow in order to get some licensing money by going into business with some uh, not entirely above board folks in Russia. That obviously is closed off to him now, thanks to all of the sanctions that were imposed after the war in Ukraine. So that avenue is is cut off. But who knows where he, he might be looking for money. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 3rd, 2024. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, this one recorded on February 1st in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio were Anna Bauer, Roger Parloff, and Quinta Jurassic. We discussed amicus briefs filed at the Supreme Court in the Trump disqualification case. We discussed Trump's financial situation and whether he can pay the fines and damages levied against him in multiple civil cases and the legal fees associated with defending himself. We checked in on Fulton County. We talked about how we're all waiting for Judge Ngoren's decision in New York and the D.C. Circuit's decision on presidential immunity in Washington. And of course, we took audience questions from our material supporters on Zoom. To be able to submit questions to the panelists, you too should become a material supporter at lawfaremedia.org support. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 3rd, Trump's Trials and Tribulations, Waiting for the D.C. Circuit. We are in a frustrating moment of waiting. We're waiting for so many things. We're waiting for Judge Ngoren to rule in New York. We're waiting for the D.C. Circuit to rule in Washington, D.C. We're waiting for the Supreme Court to hold oral arguments in the Section 3 case. We are waiting for Judge Chutkin to get the mandate back so that she can uh, hold a trial. We are waiting for Fonnie Willis tomorrow to uh, file her response to uh, the uh, salacious allegations against us. And as always, we are waiting for Judge Eileen Cannon to do just about anything. <laughs> that's the that's the one that's really uh, hard on the soul. 
In the meantime, however, Roger, um, we have something like 60 plus amicus briefs filed in the Section 3 case. Give us a Section 3 update. Uh, what is going on in the Supreme Court? Well, yesterday was the uh, deadline for amicus briefs uh, supporting the voter challengers. We had already had the amicus briefs earlier for those supporting Trump or taking no position. So um, we got a slew of them. And uh, there's some interesting things. Um, I should say the respondents brief, the voter challengers themselves, they, they filed on Friday early. Uh, and that also has some interesting things. We have all of the briefs on the disqual uh, lawfare disqualification tracker. And um, you might want to look up the brief uh, by the lead name is J. Michael Ludig. He's the famous uh, Republican judge. Uh, it's a brief on behalf of uh, former uh, high Republican officials, in, including two acting AGs and two former deputy AGs. And uh, they spend uh, they cover a number of points. But one thing they do is they they really try to uh, steal the judge's backbone to rule on the law rather than looking for an off ramp. And they remind them of their own oaths and uh, and of some of their uh, own words in recent decisions, including in the Dobbs ruling uh, overturning Roe. Uh, they wrote, uh, we cannot allow our decisions to be affected by extraneous influences. They also cite their ruling from um, uh, Heller when they uh, announced that there was, after all, a, a uh, right to bear arms for per individual uh, uh, protection, not as a militia, where they wrote, um, it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. And the brief says uh, it is not the role of this court to render Section 3 extinct. The, the voter challengers brief um, made a point I hadn't really fully appreciated. You do hear a lot of people, especially on Twitter, but elsewhere, saying uh, Trump can't, uh, uh, you know, he can't be disqualified. He hasn't been convicted of the criminal insurrection uh, statute, 18 U.S.C. 2383. Um, and uh, I had known all along that, you know, uh, after the Civil War, basically nobody that was ousted from their jobs or prevented from taking a job uh, was convicted first of anything. Not Certainly none of them were convicted of uh, 2383. But uh, a point that, that the respondents make and some others make is that, you know, Section 3 was actually designed and conceived so that there wouldn't be criminal conviction required first because in 1865, which is three, a year before it was drafted, Andrew Johnson had basically pardoned almost all of the Confederates. So uh, it wasn't really going to be possible to convict these people. And that was uh, sort of from the start. There's a very interesting brief you might want to look up called Brief of American Historians. It includes, well, there's actually two such briefs, but the one I'm thinking of is uh, has the names Jill Lepore and Drew Gilpin Faust uh, among them. And it's really just, uh, it's not like most briefs, it's more of a historical narrative of this period and sort of lets the facts speak for themselves 
you draw your own conclusions, but it's very, it's interesting if you want to understand exactly the, the, the narrative that produced section three. And of course, you, you can draw your own conclusions about whether it was supposed to apply to presidents or not. Another one I would recommend is a, a one by a guy named Kermit Roosevelt, who's a, a, a professor uh, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in constitutional law, 14th Amendment reconstruction. It's the best brief I've seen. If you're concerned about the arguments about is the Section 3 self-executing? Should uh, Griffin's case apply? What about Section 5 of the 4th? If you're interested in those questions, I would look at uh, Kermit Roosevelt. It's also very accessible. And then a bunch of uh, First Amendment uh, sort of scholars and icons, Floyd Abrams and Jeffrey Stone and Lee Bollinger uh, wrote a brief, and uh, they address some of Trump's claims about Everything he said at the ellipsis was at the ellipse was, uh, you know, core political speech. Uh, and they respond to that and say um, the contention effectively negates Section three in the vast majority of applications. All those in which someone plans, foments, assists or conspires to mount an insurrection by means that include political speech. Indeed, how could insurrectionist speech ever be deemed apolitical? Um, so uh, those are, I, I, you know, it is 60 briefs. I, I haven't read them all. Those stand out in my mind so far. Meanwhile, uh, Seth Tillman has asked, I, I don't know if you remember that name, uh, Seth Barrett Tillman is one of the two, Josh, he and Josh Blackman are the main proponents of the view. I that, remember his name. It's really he that has trouble remembering mine, I think. <laughs> well, both of them um, uh, are the main proponents of the view that Section Three does not apply to the presidents, at least in the in the in the sense that they claim that they say that, that the president is not a uh, officer of the United States. Crucial uh, triggering language. Um, he has asked for fifteen minutes of argument time for himself, even though he's just an amicus. Uh, neither side uh, has ceded that time to him, and both apparently oppose this uh, offer, uh, this request. We'll have to see what the court does with that. And the Secretary of State Griswold uh, of Colorado, she's asked for 15 minutes. Uh, that's opposed, I think, by both sides as well. Um, so we will get Trump's reply February 5th, which I think is Monday, and then a week from today, um, is the oral argument. Um, meanwhile, we have one, uh, we have some activity in Illinois, but uh, the, they uh, basically, uh, their administrative system, uh, uh, the state board of elections um, turned down a section three request, request on two state, state law grounds. Uh, that's on appeal now to the Superior Court of Cook County. And Massachusetts also, um, there was an emergency appeal. The, their their uh, state ballot law commission uh, rejected a Section 3 ground, uh, petition on grounds relating solely to the primary. That's been, there's an emergency appeal that was denied by a single justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. That's now on appeal to the full court.
So, Roger, uh, let let it never be said I don't ask my own people the tough questions, because I am thinking about when you first started writing about Section 3, which was almost immediately after January 6th, when these cases started cropping up, and they cropped up initially about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and uh, your, your friend in New Mexico, Cooey Griffin. Um, and you started following them, as I recall, in part because you thought this was a, a, a sort of dangerous course to go down and that this would inevitably lead to a challenge to Trump's ballot access. And you thought that would be really dangerous. And you seem as, as the, as time has gone on, you seem more and more persuaded, uh, by the arguments for disqualification. And I'm just curious, is my impression of your own evolution on this fair or is there some change in your own thinking of this on this as this has gone on? I think so. Um, you know, we have learned a lot more about what Section 3 was. Uh, and we've learned, you know, that insurrection does have, it is possible to find out what it meant then. You know, the usual tools lawyers use, contemporaneous case law, uh, in you know, uh, jury instructions, uh, uh, dictionary def definitions, treatises. And they all point in the same direction. This was an insurrection. He seems to have engaged in it. I am still worried about, you know, what, how the country would react. We saw that uh, Texas is apparently not following the Supreme Court's, uh, it seems to be defying the Supreme Court uh, in, in respect to border rulings, uh, a border ruling recently. So it's a scary, it's a scary thing. But uh, I think it's scary either way you go. And I, I, I don't see I think the off ramps get harder and harder to uh, articulate. They get less and less credible. Uh, I just think uh, neither the Section 3 doesn't apply to presidents nor the theory that Section 3 needs to be uh, enforced by the uh, Congress, that uh, those are weak, weaker than I thought. And uh, so I don't know how the court gets out of this in a sense. Yeah, I mean it's it's a we it's it's postured in this very weird way that the uh voter challengers have to run the table and win every single issue to prevail. On the other hand, they have the better of the argument on almost every single issue and the one where their argument is I think weakest um is ironically the one that would be the most uncomfortable for the Supreme Court to rule on, which is, I, I think, the best argument or the most difficult argument for them is uh, whether Trump meaningfully engaged in uh, the insurrection, given that he was sitting somewhere else when it happened. But that's a super hard argument if you're writing an opinion to uh to excuse him from and i think that you know so it it it's like the further it goes on the harder the off ramps are to use 
to reverse on the facts, you know, if if the court adheres to typical rule of law principles, you know, an appellate court doesn't reverse on the facts unless there's a clear it's clearly erroneous. And and it especially it's especially rare where an intermediate appellate court has already affirmed on those very facts. So here for them to intervene, plus the facts are overwhelming. And uh, I, so I, I don't see them taking that route. I, you know, if they wanted to come up with a, a weird definition of insurrection, uh, you know, that's new and say uh, there was a, uh, they didn't apply the correct definition and under that definition, it didn't happen. They could go that route, but there too, it would not be credible. It would not be credible. Quinta? Yeah, my, my favorite uh, argument from the, the Trump legal team in Colorado was that January 6th wasn't an insurrection because an insurrection has to be over four hours and in more than one building. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, I'm, and I'm really, I'm not exaggerating at all. <laughs> and it has to be, it has to be minimally competent. <laughs> that, that was actually not one of the criteria. I mean, so I, I will say, I, um, I'm joining a little bit late, so apologies if I'm restating anything. I'm a Johnny come lately on this issue compared to Roger, who has really been tracking it from the beginning. But I will say, um, Roger, as, as you said, you know, the more that I engage with the scholarship around this and the briefing, the more convinced I am that the 14th Amendment really is self-executing and it really does disqualify Trump. And obviously that's separate from the question of the specific mechanism by which that can be implemented, given the complexity of, you know, state level ballot access laws. Um, and it does raise some uncomfortable implications about, say, the role of Congress on January 6, 2025. But it just seems more and more clear that, you know, as we as we move forward, as more evidence comes out about Trump's involvement that day, that it is disqualifying. And I think that that really does put the court in a bind in a way where, you know, there's a certain amount of play in the joints here. But once the arguments become so strong that it becomes sort of obvious that you're uh, working to contort yourself to avoid the the clearly correct conclusion, that in itself can be damaging to the legitimacy of the court as well. Um, and insofar as that is a guiding principle for the chief justice, which I think is sort of accepted wisdom at this point, um, I think he's he's sort of stuck both coming and going. And that that leaves me extremely unsure what the court will do here. Yeah, I think the court's course is everybody, everybody makes a, a very glib set of assertions that this has no chance of prevailing in the court. And I think that is actually misunderstands both the commitment to originalism on the part of a bunch of the justices, but also the, uh, the power of the originalist case here. And I, I think it's very up in the air, honestly, how this comes down. All right. Uh, so while we are waiting for that, uh, we are also waiting for Judge Ngoran's judgment. Uh, but we are no longer waiting for the jury in the Eugene Carroll case. So we now have 
by my count, uh, Trump judgments in New York worth $89 million if you add the 50, the $83 million to the $5 million previously. And then we're going to layer on top of that some number of hundreds of millions of dollars that Angoran is likely to put in. We also learned that we have $50 million of legal bills that one of uh, Trump's PACs paid uh, last year. So, Quinta, I I asked you earlier in the week to uh, give us a little bit of thought on uh, how you would pay for this if this were you, who'd been some. And uh, so here are my questions in order. One, can you have the Quinta PAC pay uh, $50 million in legal bills. Two, can you have the Quinta PAC pay $89 million in uh, judgments against you? And three, can you have the PAC settle off your, you know, if you uh, get uh, hundreds of millions of dollar judgment? What do you do? And uh, what can we expect in terms of Trump's financial capacity to handle the financial body blows that he's now receiving. So two things to start off. First off, if I had to deal with this amount of money, um, I would simply leap into a volcano. But that's the difference (laughs) between me and Donald Trump. Um, And second off, I think it's important that we do not leave out uh, the fact that this is uh, $89 million plus the $15,000 that Trump owes for violating the gag order <laughs> that Justice Engeron placed on him. So that's a, an important uh, addition <laughs> to those nice round numbers. That remembers reminds me of the old Jewish joke of two, two old Jewish men sitting on a park bench. And one of them says to the other, if I had all of Rockefeller's money, I'd be richer than Rockefeller. And the other one says, his friend says, what do you mean you'd be richer than Rockefeller? If you had all of Rockefeller's money, you'd be as rich as Rockefeller. It's the same amount of money. And the guy says, no, but I could tutor bar mitzvahs on the side. Well, maybe that's how Trump is, is going to end up paying these legal fees. Um, in, in all seriousness, so as you alluded, Ben, um, Trump has been paying for his copious legal fees through something called a leadership PAC. Um, so listeners are probably familiar with PACs, political action committees. Um, this is something that is different than a super PAC, which is something that has to be unaffiliated with a candidate and can't coordinate with them. Uh, leadership PAC is, uh, established by a candidate or an office holder, um, and can be used for, for all kinds of payments. In this instance, um, the argument is that, there, there's sort of two arguments here. One, one is that uh, candidates can use PAC money to pay for legal expenses that are related in some way to their campaign or to their time in public office. Um, and so to the extent that there is a nexus between Trump's legal fees and his campaign, um, he can make that argument. The other aspect is that because this is all being funded through a leadership PAC, that um, specific aspect of federal election law has not been particularly well enforced um, when it comes to leadership PACs specifically. And so he may kind of have a little more leeway there, which is good for him, because in some of these cases, such as the New York civil case, I think the, the argument that there's some kind of nexus to his time in office or to his candidacy is 
a little unclear unless you buy the argument that he's being persecuted because of uh, his candidacy. I'm, I'm not sure uh, what the FEC would would make of that. So this leadership pack has paid, as you said, a pretty extraordinary chunk of change out uh, for his legal fees over the last few years. We know also that it has asked for some money back um, from another Trump pack that it had loaned in order to pay legal fees. I believe it was $60 million that it requested back. But that is relevant to the the legal fees, which is separate from this money that he now has to put up because of the judgments against him in the Carroll case and the possible or the judgment that we assume is coming against him in the the New York civil case. Um, I will say the New York Times reported um, that. I don't have the language right in front of me, but it's something along the lines of some legal experts say he could use money from the leadership pack to pay those fees. Um, ben and I have done some digging on this ourselves, and the the person we spoke to suggested that he would not be able to. Um, so I think it's it's not entirely clear. He could raise separate uh, funds for this purpose through a legal defense fund, you know, saying specifically we're going to be using this money to pay these judgments. But I think the short version is that it is far less clear that he'll be able to do that. Um, He may really need to put up this money, and he's especially going to need to put it up if he wants to appeal these judgments. So in the Carroll case that in which we received the first judgment, um, confusingly called Carroll 2, so that's the the $5 million judgment, um, he had to put up... uh, 5.5 5.5 million with the court in order to appeal. Um, this is sometimes called an appeal bond, essentially to make sure you know that the money is actually there while you're arguing that the the amount should be reduced or scrapped entirely. The the way that this works varies um, in federal courts. My understanding is that uh, in the in the Second Circuit where. Uh, these federal cases are the Carroll cases. Um, it's really up to the discretion of the court. Um, in the Southern District of New York, the court tends to ask for 110% upfront. So there's a uh, 5.5 million deposited with the court in Carroll 2. Um, if he does decide to appeal the judgment in Carroll 1, which I imagine he will, um, that would end up with about $92 million up front with the court. Um, and he'll also owe interest. Um, so we don't have exactly the percent. Um, but you know, once you're getting to those kinds of numbers, that can potentially be hefty. Then um, in the New York v. Trump, in the, the civil suit in the New York state court, so uh, Attorney General Tish James is asking for $370 million in judgment. Uh, my understanding is that under New York state law, um, per the, the statutes, he'd need to deposit 100% upfront, and he's going to owe a pretty hefty uh, 9% interest rate on that money. Um, and again, this is what he's going to need to do if he wants to appeal those judgments. So then we have the question of, can he afford this? Um, as listeners are probably aware, the question of how much money Trump has and where it is, is kind of unclear. The New York Times has a good report on this from uh, Maggie Haberman that suggests that he's probably able to pay that 83 or 89 million, depending on how you count, um, up front, but that that potential 370 million judgment might be a real problem for him and he might have to start selling off assets. Um, he could try to get a bond, 
Uh, but I think there's a, a question of, you know, who's going to be willing to to write that bond for him at this point? Deutsche Bank. Um, well, right. So that, that was my next point, right? Traditionally, Deutsche Bank plays this role, um, not just for Trump specifically, but for sort of uh, shady actors in general. I don't know if they'd want to get involved in this one. It's also true that, you know, we know in the past, thanks to the Mueller report, we have a pretty good record of what it can look like when Trump is hard up for cash. The Mueller report has a big section on his efforts to build a Trump Tower Moscow in order to get some licensing money by going into business with some uh, not entirely above board folks in Russia. That obviously is closed off to him now, thanks to all of the sanctions that were imposed after the war in Ukraine. So that avenue is is cut off. But who knows where he he might be looking for money? Um, so I think this this may get pretty interesting pretty soon in terms of what information will surface about Donald Trump's financial picture and also who is willing to lend money to him at this point. One other thing before we uh, move on to the next thing we're waiting for, which is, uh, unlike with Eugene Carroll, uh, the Trump organization is subject to this special monitor that the court imposed. And so um, is it can we expect that there will be a certain amount of transparency as a result of uh, that monitor's access to information that uh, the larger Trump financial picture is somewhat of a black box. But when you're dealing with the Trump organization specifically, the monitor has access to information about where money is coming from, right? That's a great point. I confess I don't know the specifics of how much access the monitor has, but it is true that we've had some uh indications already that we will be getting more transparency. So the monitor, who's Barbara Jones, who's a, a formal federal judge and, and prosecutor, um, sent a letter to Justice Engeron, uh, essentially alerting him that the Trump organization had told her that there they had a uh, $48 million loan. Um, and uh, apparently there is no record <laughs> of this loan. And uh, after asking the Trump organization about it, uh, Jones was informed that the loan did not in fact exist. Um, so that suggests that there may be a, a certain amount of uh, creative accounting, let's say, going on within the, the Trump organization. And we may well be getting more information about that soon. All right. So from very large sums of money uh, in New York to much smaller sums of money in divorce court in Fulton County, uh, Anna, when you came to work for Lawfare, uh, I am certain you had in mind Cobb County divorce court, uh, seamy uh, hearings and the like. Fonnie Willis is supposed to respond tomorrow. She and Nathan Wade both have subpoenas, but there's no divorce court testimony happening. Bring us up to speed. Uh, is this petering out or is it just heating up and kind of all ready for, for court TV? Yeah. It, well, there's, if that there's... still exists, which I don't <laughs> think it does. Uh, well, there's there. No, I think Court TV. I was actually watching Court TV the other day. Uh, so, yeah, it does exist. Um, well, but, Roger and I used to work for the OG 
court TV owning company. Uh, and, uh, at least I had to do regular court TV appearances. I suspect Roger did too, um, back in the, the early nineties when we were, uh, all working for American lawyer media, which owned TV, court TV. Well, I was watching it the other day because they had the Murdaugh, um, uh, you know, motion for a new trial hearing, which I is not within lawfare's area of interest, but is certainly something that I've been interested in. Uh, but in terms of Fulton County, uh, we have had some uh, more developments on the divorce case front, which, of course, is in some ways related to the criminal case because uh, Nathan Wade had been called or, or it was ex was expected to testify at this hearing that was supposed to be held on Wednesday. Uh, it was a temporary hearing in the divorce case. And what that means and the kind of purpose of that hearing uh, was for the parties. So Nathan Wade's estranged wife, uh, Joycelyn Wade, and then and then Nathan Wade as well. Uh, we're trying to, you know, have the judge determine what this like interim kind of uh, situation would be between the two of them in terms of what their financial obligations would be to one another. Um, there had been uh, representations made in court filings in that case by Joycelyn Wade that uh, basically kind of said, you know, Nathan Wade wasn't paying her enough. Uh, she had been a homemaker during their marriage, that kind of thing. Uh, so that was kind of the purpose of, of that hearing. And it was supposed to be an evidentiary hearing. Jo Joycelyn Wade's team said that they were going to question Nathan Wade about his conduct and his relationship with Fonnie Willis. Uh, but then the eve of that hearing, uh, we learned through a, a court filing that, in fact, the parties had reached what's called a temporary agreement. Um, so basically, until there is some kind of final settlement or a final hearing in which the judge determines, uh, you know, the the divorce uh, award and makes some kind of judgment on the on the issue, then then the party basically will follow this temporary agreement that could last for a long time. And it's kind of unclear what the terms were because the parties agreed not to file it with the court. So we have no idea you know, what the terms were, if it included potentially some kind of agreement with some of the outstanding discovery matters around uh, Fonnie Willis potentially being deposed and Nathan Wade being deposed. Um, but as far as I am aware right now, notwithstanding, the kind of lack of knowledge as to what those conditions are in that agreement. Uh, the divorce case has not been finally settled. Uh, there, there still could be a trial on it. So it's still something that is kind of unclear exactly what impact it could have ahead of this February 15th hearing. But at, at the very least, the temporary agreement being reached meant that Nathan Wade did not have to testify. However, as you mentioned, Ben, Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis and several others have, have been subpoenaed to testify at the February February 15th hearing, which is on the motion to disqualify. Uh, there's also the response that is coming tomorrow. Uh, I mean, it technically could come today, but it's I think it's likely to come tomorrow. 
I expect that it's very likely Fonnie Willis's team is going to lean very heavily on some of the legal arguments uh, as opposed to disputing some of the factual allegations. Uh, I, I'm sure that there might be some areas that they dispute in terms of the factual allegations that have been made. But I, I, I think that my understanding is that it's it seems very likely they're going to focus on some of the legal arguments there. Uh, and then to top it all off, we also learned this week uh, through some suits that were filed. Uh, Mike Roman is is now suing the Fulton County District Attorney's Office or excuse me, Mike Roman's attorney, Ashley Merchant, is suing the Fulton County District Attorney's Office ahead of this February 15th hearing for alleged violations of Georgia's Open Records Act. Uh, and then also another person who is suing the county for alleged Open Records Act violations is a, an attorney named John Monroe. He is suing them on behalf of of Judicial Watch, but he is the attorney for Misty Hampton, who is one of Trump's co-defendants in the case as well. Uh, Misty Hampton has, as far as I'm aware, not technically joined the motion to disqualify, but it seems like several of them may um, be waiting to see what Fonnie Willis's response is before they join. Um, and and those uh, lawsuits about the Open Records Act relate to records that the attorneys had been trying to, uh, to get under the Georgia's Open Records Act that relate to Nathan Wade's compensation uh, and a few other categories that seem very relevant to the February 15th hearing. I am personally still also waiting for some open records requests to come back. And so I, you can join <laughs> Judicial Watch in the suit. <laughs> so who knows? It may be Lawfare and, ju- and Judicial Watch. Yeah, at some don't point. hold your breath on that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's what that's what's happening. Oh, and don't forget the cyber attack. Yeah, too. that's what I was going to ask about. So this brief is due tomorrow, but the last I checked, the Fulton County docket is still down as a result of this cyber attack. So will Fonnie Willis be capable of filing her response? And will the press have to get it by carrier pigeon or some other pre-1995 technology uh, that, you know, like actually photocopy it and put it in an envelope and send a courier to to deliver it to, you know, the Atlanta Journal Constitution and us? Well, it's a it's a good question. Uh, I so just for some background for everyone who has not heard about the cyber attack over the weekend, there was a a cybersecurity incident that was experienced by Fulton County government systems. Uh, Basically, all the Fulton County websites were down. government officials were not able to access their email systems and other systems. The uh, Superior Court docket has been down since I was trying to check it. I believe it was on Saturday and it, and I couldn't get it to work. Um, and Or maybe it was even Friday, uh, last Friday. Um, and, and I couldn't get it to work. Uh, it was kind of unclear what was going on. 
Turns out it was a suspected cyber attack. Local officials uh, are investigating, and and I believe that the FBI has also confirmed in some reports that uh, it has been you know asked to investigate. Uh, at this time, though, my understanding from speaking with a source in local government is that uh, there is there is no uh, apparent connection at this time. But to the Trump case, uh, you know, it's it seems like this has affected uh, numerous uh, agencies within the county, uh, not just the Superior Court and uh, the district attorney's office. So while they are investigating, it, it is not something that seems to have first impacted the Trump case and and second does not at this time seem to be related to the Trump case. Although I, I know that there was a lot of speculation about maybe that's what was going on. But as a result, we still do not have access to the docket. So I have no Judge McAfee could have ruled on a bunch of things today and I would have no idea because uh, at this time you kind of have to get uh, filings from people who are willing to give them to you or you have to go in person and and try to see what you can find. Um, I've been in federal court today all day, uh, not superior court, so I haven't had a chance to check. But my understanding is that tomorrow I'm basically just going to have a day of waiting around in the Fulton County Superior Court courthouse to see when the district attorney's office is going to walk that filing in. And and, uh, I just imagine that there's going to be a number of reporters there waiting for it. So it's kind of unclear. And will you be bringing your own personal copying machine? You know, it's a good question. I probably should. uh, But I... (laughs) I it, I will say it will be just like another instance in which part of my job requires me to just like wait around and wait in line for a very long time. Uh, which is one of your favorite things to do. So, you know, um, <laughs> lawfare right. will be first in line. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so let's talk about another thing that we're waiting for, which is the DC Circuit. I know Quinta has had her head explode several times uh, at the DC Circuit. I got an email from uh, a colleague at the Bulwark yesterday that simply had the one line, what the heck is the DC Circuit doing? 
and the estimable uh, Mary McCord and Andrew Weissman uh, both lost a gasket over the DC circuit on their podcast the other night. So everybody seems to be super frustrated. And Quinta, this is your chance to unload with bile and venom and fire and brimstone on the judges of the DC circuit. Sure. Thanks, Ben. With with that uh, introduction. So it's been a few weeks. I confess I don't remember the specific date, but uh, uh, three weeks ago, I think, um, since the, the DC circuit heard oral argument in uh, Trump's appeal of his what he argues is his his criminal immunity um, in the January 6th case. And since then, we have had radio silence. If anyone on here listened to the podcast that we recorded after our arguments, I think we all, like fools, uh, predicted that the court would move quickly on it, including you, Ben. Um, despite your despite your posture of equanimity, my prediction was forty eight hours, yep. and I, I am I am not claiming I was not wrong. I'm merely <laughs> claiming that I'm at peace with being wrong. <laughs> so right, so we had all predicted that the court would move pretty quickly, um, and the reason for that is that the uh, the trial for all the proceedings are stayed until we get an answer back from the DC circuit on this question. Um, And I think it is also fair to assume that if we get a ruling against Trump, um, which I think we're all expecting based on the way that oral argument went for him, um, that he will then attempt to appeal that up to the Supreme Court. Then we have to wait to see what they're going to do. Um, if they decide to grant cert, then they have to hear argument and so on and so forth. Um, and so what all of this means is the longer that it takes the D.C. Circuit to rule, the more Trump's trial in D.C. is pushed back. It was originally scheduled for March 4th. That's clearly not going to happen. There's some indication from Judge Chutkin's scheduling of other trials that she would expect that the earliest it could move would be mid-April, I believe, at, at this point. And there is a ticking clock, given that if he wins the election in November, um, he will have the ability to get rid of these charges um, by by one mechanism or another, thanks to uh, presidential the the immunity that exists um, when you are actually president from prosecution um, and the ability to uh, tell the Justice Department to throw all of this out. I would also argue, you know, there is a democratic interest, small d democratic, in uh, voters knowing what a jury of their peers thinks about whether or not uh, the person for whom they are voting uh, committed a federal crime having to do with his insistence on staying in office despite losing an election. So all of this means that there's there's really a premium on uh, moving quickly here. Uh, Judge Chutkin seems to appreciate that, the DC Circuit perhaps less so. We were all optimistic that they would move quickly um, because they had expedited the briefing schedule and seemed conscious that they needed to sort of keep things moving along. Uh, certainly there seemed to be an awareness, an oral argument of the stakes here. Um, and yet here we sit, they have not done anything. Um, each day that we sit with no news, I, I get closer and closer to just standing outside the Prettyman courthouse with a, a bullhorn or maybe some pots and pans to to bang together. 
Certainly, it look. It is true that you know three week a three week turnaround for an appeals court under normal circumstances would be extremely speedy. These are not normal circumstances. Um, it is not normal that, and I do not think I am exaggerating here. Potentially, the fate of democracy in the United States could rest on whether or not this panel can get a move on. Um, so I really, really hope that they are aware of this. Um, I don't think it's time to panic yet, to be clear. If we don't have a ruling by March, then I'm going to be really, really nervous. All right. So so where on the scale, if one is completely at peace with life, the universe and, and everything, and seven is standing outside the court with a sign that says rule now, damn it, uh, where, where are you on the frustration scale? So I confess, um, I our uh, estimable uh, associate editor Anna Hickey, who is is directing traffic here, uh, did the math on when we the latest we'd need a ruling from the DC Circuit to have a verdict by the election. And I confess I cannot remember what the answer was, but I I believe um, it was April or May. So look, we're we're not there yet. I don't know, like a five. Like it's, it inches closer and closer to a seven every every passing day. I really feel also that, you know, frankly, this is a case in which the louder that the commentariat is about the fact that the court needs to move, I think the, the better because there is not necessarily an awareness um, that this is an issue of, of such importance. Well, Judges Childs, Henderson, and uh, Pan... All of whom I assume are are watching on YouTube. If you are watching on YouTube, I I don't know any of you to be material supporters of Lawfare, for for which I hold a grudge. I mean, you could be joining the the chat in in the Zoom here. And by the way, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, come into the light. Join us here in the Zoom. We have an active chat. Everybody's really uh, fun. And of course, as you'll see in a moment, you get you get to ask your questions, uh, which uh, uh, the the Zoomers, uh, the the YouTubers don't necessarily get to do. But uh, if you're watching Judges Henderson, Childs, and Pan, get a move on. Uh, Quintus uh, blood pressure, uh, bring it down. Um, it's you're you're causing unhealthy reactions in the commentariat across Washington. Uh, and I know there are at least some people at the bulwark who are really strung out about this too. All right. Um, Roger, before we, uh, move on, there's one other person that we're waiting for. And it is, as always, uh, Judge Eileen Cannon. Has there been anything, has anything happened in South Florida that is even worth taking note of this week? Uh, well, she held a uh, three-hour ex-party hearing uh, yesterday. And so we, because ex-party means it was with the government only, it was sealed. Uh, so I can't tell you a whole lot about what happened. But um, this relates to the SEPA Section 4 business. Um, she's uh, uh, She's deciding whether to give Trump and the other two defendants in that case, Nora and de Oliveira, some information about the government's motion, which is usually completely ex parte. Uh, They want to have this be more adversarial proceeding. And um, it's unclear whether she's going to now 
rule on that between now and February 12th when another hearing starts. She's going to have a she's scheduled a two day hearing. And I believe that, too, should be sealed. But um, because it will also be about uh, the classified documents. But um, the question, I guess, will be the degree to which any defense participation, there'll be any defense participation at that hearing. Um, so anyway, that's that's where we are. We'll also get uh, tomorrow or maybe today, we'll get uh, the government's response substantively to the uh, Trump's motions to compel. Um, uh, so that's, yeah, that's either today or tomorrow. I can't remember. All right. We are going to go to audience questions, of which there are 12. Jeff asks, can anything be done to prevent presidential candidates offering future pardons for criminal acts to help them get elected? Quinta, you've thought about this a little bit, and I'm inclined to say the answer is nope. Um, are you uh, inclined to agree, or uh, do you think it's more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is don't vote for that person, unfortunately. Um, I suppose if they were elected, you could then impeach them on the grounds that that constitutes an act of bribery, perhaps. Um, but there's not really a mechanism to do anything um, ahead of time other than use your good sense to not put that person in office uh, in the first place, which, as we've seen, is not necessarily a reliable mechanism. All right. I will read Josh's question. Uh, what the heck is the D.C. Circuit panel considering considering Trump's presidential immunity defense doing? Why haven't they written something like Blass and Game v. Trump saying not now at the motion to dismiss stage and give it back to Chutkin? So the first half of that we've we've addressed, which is to say we we don't know what's taking them so long. The reason they have not uh, done simply treated it like a, a motion to dismiss question is that there is this uh, exception to the collateral order doctrine that says you don't have to wait for uh, a conviction to be final to appeal a matter of immunity. Now, how far that goes and whether the court therefore does or doesn't have jurisdiction is before the court and has been argued to the court. Um, but uh, that is the reason why there is presumptively and why Chutkin herself assumed that an appeal would uh, would lie at this point. Tom asks, some of the most costly cases for Trump are upcoming. He faces civil liability for the Capitol Police and members of Congress. However, I have not found any action since the appeals court ruled that he is not immune. Did Trump appeal again? Uh, so I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, uh, if any of you do, let me know. But normally there is a good block of time between when uh, an appeals court rules and when the mandate issues. And if Trump were to want to go either on bonk or uh, to the Supreme Court, he would, I want to say there's 
going to be some time left on that from when Blasting Game was issued. Uh, does anybody know chapter and verse on that? I had, I remember I looked it up a while back. I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it was between like 30 to 40 something days that typically the mandate, uh, like, so I, I think my calculation was roughly like, it's usually like a, like over a month, maybe that it, of the gap between uh, when the ruling is hand, handed down and when the mandate issues. Yeah. But then there's, but, but the time for a cert petition can be, a little longer than that, I think. I don't, I don't know, but the, 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 the short answer is that, uh, I would not assume that this is necessarily, you know, and if he has noticed an appeal, then, you know, it would still be frozen in place. Um, I don't think it has, um, gone into discovery at the at the lower court yet. I think we would know something about that if that were happening. Um, Auntie Rua Conan joining us from a late evening in Finland. Uh, you have a pair of questions. Yes, thank you, Ben. Could you go over the possible appeals path for the E.G. Carroll case for Trump and the relevant time frame thereof? So do any of you guys know the appellate uh, time frame in New York un- in, under New York state law? Because I sure do not. No, I don't know the time frame. It goes. It it'll go to the first appellate division, first department, and then with a possible appeal to the court of appeals. But uh, I I assume it could take a long time. I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, as a general matter, a lot of state courts are pretty backlogged, um, state appeals courts, and so um, I don't know what the average time to disposition of an appeal in a in the normal $83 million uh, New York state judgment looks like, I would expect that is a, uh, uh, the appellate process here is probably a good couple years. I, I misspoke. This is not in the, uh, the E.G. E. Jean Carroll is yeah, in it's federal in, it's court. In federal court. It, it goes to the, I'm sorry, it goes to the second circuit and then he could, file a cert petition, that would be sort of strange. So a, a Second Circuit appeal, it, that's a lengthy process. And you're going to, you know, this case has a big record and you're going to, you're going to spend a while on that. And um, uh, I, I don't know what the, you know, again, what the average time to disposition is. But again, you have uh, the judgment has to be finalized and then you have a notice of appeal and then there's an appeal and then a briefing schedule. And so you're talking about, I would say, 18 months to two years kind of minimum. That would be my guess if you figure in the cert petition that is almost certain to happen. Your second question. Uh, So this is to Quinta. Could we actually see a situation where one one Trump pack might sue another Trump pack due to uh, non-repayment of a loan? I mean, I, I don't see a reason why that couldn't happen. They're all very litigious people. I, although, obviously, if they're run by the same people, that wouldn't make a huge amount of, of sense. So I'm I'm not really sure. I, I confess I don't know. Roger, what do you think? No, I, I mean... Uh... 
I don't know what's theoretically possible. That it doesn't sound pragmatically possible. You know, people think of PACs as organizations, but what really PACs really are bank accounts, and there are sometimes rules that prevent them from coordinating with one another or with campaigns uh, that cause them to have to have separate personnel. But these are all organizations that are going to be uh, act supposedly acting in the interests of Donald Trump. And so it does not behoove them under those circumstances to uh, waste money litigating with one another. Doug, the floor is yours. My favorite four panelists, what a, what a, what a treat to talk to you. My question is, um, I'm thinking of what an explanation for the delay from the D.C. District Court of Appeals may be that the judges are trying to head off maybe by working with the embank members or, or even in a very optimistic way, Supreme Court members, so that anything they decide would not be appealed. I mean, it just seems to me they should be working this way together, but maybe I'm just... It would be quite unethical for them to be doing so, um, and uh, they're they're not really allowed to... Uh, speak outside the circle of people who are authorized to be part of, particularly across uh, levels of the judiciary. The Supreme Court is their reviewing court here. And um, as convenient as it would be for us, and as much it would as it would lower Quinta's blood pressure for uh, all of the justices to get in a room and hash it out and all the judges uh, that's actually not the way it works. And um, these three are going to decide it themselves. Uh, we all know how it's going to come out. It's not uh, a big secret that they will not rule for Trump. The only real question is what grounds will they use and will there be a dissent? There are also are not the votes on the D.C. Circuit to reverse them on bonk on this. So you could wait, you could eat up some time by going on bonk, but you're not going to change the outcome. The only real question is whether you could get the Supreme Court to review it. Roger, am I being uh, overly simplistic? Uh, no, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I still think we saw that it looked like uh, Judge Henderson was on a different wavelength from the other, at least, at least it's the other two. And, uh, but we don't know uh, beyond that uh, what's happening. I did want to ask two judges if if you could talk to another judge informally. And uh, I actually got different answers from the two of them. One said there, it wasn't, you know, literally un uh, forbidden. It's, it's trickier for a district judge to talk to an appellate judge because uh, that would not be right because you were an appellate judge to talk to a higher level appellate judge. Yeah. But he, here where there is a specific, uh, you know, there's a specific process, the panel decides and then you can you can move for a end bank rehearing if you lose. And then and then you pass around, you know, every all the judges consider here. There's a procedure. So it, it, I think it it would be inappropriate to talk to each other before then. Eric, uh, I will read his question. Could 
Trump not put the mo- up the money on the Carroll case via the PAC on the basis that it's being used uh, for the campaign. I don't know New York laws, but there's a colorable argument. It's politics adjacent. The Trump Corporation case seems impossible to be paid through a PAC by contrast. So, look, I have heard differing things on this question about what the law will conceivably tolerate. Um, I think it is fair to say that Trump will be pretty aggressive um, about the use of campaign funds uh, or PAC funds, to be precise, that he will be he will do whatever he thinks he can get away with. The amounts of money are big. And if he thinks he can use donor funds to satisfy uh, some of this uh, obligation, I suspect he will try. Um, I agree with you that it may be harder in the Trump organization case where you're talking about the organization having supposedly defrauded the state of New York with respect to its valuations and its money, right? Uh, then with the Eugene Carroll case, where I suppose he could say, hey, none of this ever came up until I was president and running for president. So it's really an ancillary expense of my uh, political career. And therefore, I can use campaign funds. But I expect he will try to do whatever he thinks he can get away with. Um, but look, I don't know. Maybe he'll just write a check. Uh, Quinta, do you, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's basically right. Um, especially because of the sorry state of enforcement of campaign finance law, frankly. Um, I mean, the amount of money involved is pretty huge, um, which may, you know, so perhaps there's more of an interest, um, in making sure that it complies with a relevant law. But I agree, there's there's a fair amount of flexibility and uncertainty here in Trump's modus operandi is to push as far as he can push. The famed anonymous attendee asks, do we have historical examples of candidates who've won elections to federal offices, particularly to the House or Senate, who were deemed ineligible under the Constitution? And what has occurred under such circumstances? Roger? Have we elected any 15-year-olds? <laughs> yeah. Shortly after the Civil War, um, well, actually, Alexander Stevens, the vice, the vice president of the Confederacy, was elected to come back, I think, in uh, January 1866. And uh, this was actually before Section 3, and they refused to seat him. There were some cases, uh, uh, other Civil War cases, where the Congress refused to seat them. It's a little confusing whether that's under Section 3 or not, because Congress already has the power to refuse to seat people. Uh, in fact, each 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 chamber can refuse to seat somebody separately. But uh, there was a case in around 1922, after World War One. maybe it was earlier, um, uh, it was Victor Berger who had been uh, elected. He was a German American. Um, he had was in the, either had been or was in the process of being tried for treason for stuff that you would not get tried for treason for today. Uh, 
Uh, I think maybe he uh, uh, resisted the draft or, or was advising people not to cooperate with the draft. Anyway, uh, he was uh, there was a formal Section 3 proceeding to keep him out and he was kept out. And then uh, after the Supreme Court overturned his conviction um, and he was seated a couple years later um, without actually a two thirds vote to lift any disability. So it's a confusing precedent. But uh, I think uh, those are the examples that come to my mind. All right. Penelope asks, what is the scuttlebutt on Judge Henderson and the D.C. Circuit panel? So we've mostly covered this, at least in what we can say without being grossly irresponsible. Um, I, I will say about Judge Henderson, uh, she's been on that court for a long time. She's the senior judge on the panel. She uh, uh, actually is an, a very unusual D.C. Circuit judge in that her chambers are uh, in, in South Carolina. She, she doesn't actually, uh, work out of Washington. She comes here for oral arguments and is otherwise, uh, uh, in South Carolina. She is, uh, was appointed by George H.W. Bush. So she's been on the court. Uh, she may be the longest serving judge on that court right now. Um, uh, and I believe, Although I'm not sure about this, I believe she has not taken senior status and is um, uh, still a sitting uh, judge of the court. Uh, beyond that, uh, I don't I don't want to deal in gossip. Um, and uh, she is, uh, as Roger said, she was she was, seemed to have a different approach at oral argument. It was not obviously a friendly approach to Trump, but it was quite different from the other two. And if you asked me to speculate about what the source of the, of the delay is, my speculation, and it is only speculation, is that either they are endeavoring to reconcile their differing approaches and to be unanimous, which would be, I think, the hopeful, uh, read, or that she is writing a substantial document, either a concurrence in the judgment on some other grounds, or a dissent. Uh, that's, uh, that's about as the best I can do offhand. Nathaniel, uh, unmute yourself and the floor is yours. Thank you. And good morning, everybody from, from Australia. Um, my question relates to section three. You've just beaten auntie for the, for the <laughs> longest distance question here. So section three has two lists that are, aren't quite equivalent. The first list is of the positions that people can be barred from, and the second is the prior oaths list. It seems like an, an appealing escape hatch for SCOTUS would be to conclude that for the first list, the presidency is an office, civil or military, under the United States that candidates can be barred from. But for the second list, the oaths list, which uh, to, set, to conclude that Trump has never previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution. Because he's the only president, as far as I'm aware, who have never held a prior office or commission for which he had to take an oath. So this conclusion would be tailored to include the president from the position's barred list, but exclude Trump specifically. Or, Roger, I think this is to you, does the Tillman-Blackman textual analysis exclude the presidency from both lists, meaning the presidency, meaning, for instance, Jefferson Davis could have been eligible to be president? Thanks. 
It's a it's a good question. And Tillman Blackman have always taken the position. They take the position that the president is not an officer of the United States. So that's the list that take oaths. They are agnostic as to whether the presidency is an office dot, dot, dot under the United States. That is still their position. That's been their position even before, you know, when when they weren't discussing Section 3, uh, when they were discussing other issues that arise about that definition. In their brief, they do say that in 1788, both were not, did not refer to the uh, president or the presidency. They seem to feel that in the 80 years between the founding, 1788 is the ratification of the original constitution, and 1866, the ratification of the section three, that there might have been some linguistic drift with respect to office, but they adhere to the view that uh, officer uh, still does not encompass the the presidency and uh, the president. All right, Jacob, you get the last question today. Thanks. Um, so I guess my question is, is the New York trial around the Stormy Daniels check still scheduled for March? And if so, presumably they can hold that because the D.C. January 6th case isn't going to go in March. Is that a trial jury? Is, like, is that going to start the process for that going to start soon? What's the timeline on that? Thanks. Yeah. So uh, um, this one's anybody correct me if I get anything wrong or if you have anything to add, just jump in. That trial is still scheduled for March 25th. Uh, the judge in that case had made made clear that he would yield to Judge Chutkin uh, if there were a conflict. He, however, did not move his trial date in response to hers, a decision that is looking quite wise right now because uh, she is stuck in the mud. And he, uh, uh, as a result, uh, the first case that may go to trial may well be uh, the Alvin Bragg case in New York on March 25th. I don't believe there is any impediment to that case actually happening. Um, and uh, it is quietly puttering along uh, discovery and motions and the like. Am I missing anything on this? I think that's right. I mean, I would also add that a few weeks ago at a hearing, Fulton County prosecutors, while they have asked for an August trial date and there is no trial date set in that case, uh, they indicated that they might be willing to ask for an earlier trial date, uh, depending on, you know, Trump's or, or the schedule in other cases. Um, of course, now think there's a little bit of a, a wrench in all of that because of the current pending disqualification motion. So to be seen what happens, because I'm already pretty skeptical this case is going to go to trial before the election. And, and of course, if Fonnie Willis is uh, disqualified, then there is zero chance, in my view, that it does uh, go to trial before the election because it'll have to go to another prosecutor's office. Um, and that could be a process that takes a while. But don't fully count out Fulton, the Fulton County case or at least a subset of defendants potentially going to trial before the election. 
Um, it's a small but still still real possibility based on the outcome of this Mike Roman uh, hearing on February 15th. I, th- I think there is a hearing February 15th in the New York case as well. Um, uh, it might be a status type. Maybe we'll learn something there about uh, what's what's going on before one uh, Judge Justice Juan Merchan. I promise you it will be less fun than the Fulton County hearing on of the same day. We are going to leave it there. Roger Parloff from the Sconce studio, Anna Bauer from the hotel-like room in her palatial mansion, Quinta Jurassic from the Propaganda studio, and I, uh, from the Mar-a-Lago bathroom, bid you a wonderful week. And remember, next week, we will be on at four after the oral argument. So it will be a debrief on the Supreme Court arguments and whatever else has happened between now and then. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by doing that thing I talked about during the show, becoming a material supporter of Lawfare through the website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. Remember, it may be a crime to provide material support to terrorists, but it is a virtue to provide material support to national security-oriented websites. It will also enable you to pose questions to our panel and to become part of our conversation in future Zoom webinars. This podcast is edited by the long-suffering Jen Patya, and your audio engineer this episode was the intrepid Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music, as always, is performed by the Istanbul-based journalist and pianist Sophia Yan, and as always... Thanks for listening.